Acts, we see a clear picture of the responsibility of the believer to the world. When Paul and Barnabas left Antioch to go on their first missionary journey, they began the last phase of our Lord's Great Commission. And they did it all without a telephone. The gospel had been preached in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and now they began to go to the end of the world. In this, in this section of the book of Acts, we find the pattern of all Christian witness in any age. The responsibility of the church is to make disciples. In this chapter, Paul, Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas minister in three different cities, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. In Iconium, though this was a Gentile city, there was a strong colony of Jews who had a synagogue. Paul and Barnabas went right to it because the Jews were already familiar with the scriptures and they valued the truth about God. But they also went because they loved their fellow countrymen. They began with the most natural contact that they had and a great multitude of both Jews and Gentiles believed. Since this was a synagogue, it was a place where religious people gathered going over the truth of God. A great deal of truth was available there, but there were empty hearts. All of their knowledge had not brought them to peace and forgiveness. But when Paul and Barnabas declared the grace of God in Jesus, the fact that in Jesus there was a way to receive from God all that we are looking for, cleansing, forgiveness, freedom from guilt, adequacy, and so much more, these people believed. This is the impact of the gospel. It doesn't make any difference what our background has been, how dark or wrong, or how smug and self-righteous and hypocritical it has been. The great work of the gospel is that Jesus Christ cleanses us, sets us free, and makes us able to be what God intends us to be. The pattern had been to go into the synagogue, have a terrific start, and then boom, trouble. That's exactly what happened in Antioch, and that is what happened here. Verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. The word Luke uses here for unbelieving literally means unpersuadable. They not only disbelieved the gospel, but they wouldn't give it a chance. They wouldn't even consider it. In the Greek, literally, it says, the Jews, the ones who were disobedient. An unbeliever is disobedient to God and his truth. So these disobedient Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the apostles and whoever had believed. They were not met with the outright open opposition they had faced in Antioch. Here it is subtle whispering poisonous propaganda that is spread against them. The, operate, the opposition was kind of underground, it was smoldering. It was bitter and full of hate, and a slow polarization of the population of Iconium was taking place. In verse 3, we read that they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Paul and Barnabas knew the resentment was brewing, yet they continued to boldly preach, declaring the truth. They knew that when things are smoldering, something is happening. The Lord was giving testimony by granting signs and wonders. They'd preach and the Lord would give them the power to do miracles. 
that pointed to the power of God working through them. These were special gifts just for the apostles, which we don't have today. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul states, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Apostles were given the ability to perform signs which created wonder, and they had the ability to perform mighty deeds. This is the gift of miracles and healing. These are temporary gifts given to them to confirm their preaching. When the gospel was preached in these early days, there were certain special gifts given to these men in order to confirm their message and that the message might be believable. The miracles established in the minds of an unbelieving people that the message was of God. God was attaching to their ministry supernatural evidence that is no longer needed today. Today we can determine whether truth is being spoken by comparing what is being taught with the scriptures. The scripture becomes the confirmation today, whereas miracles were the confirmation in the days before the canon of scripture was complete. The city began to polarize, verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. Paul and Barnabas' preaching and teaching polarized the believers and unbelievers to two extremes, about ready to explode. The claims of Jesus Christ polarized men. The gospel is not intended to bring peace except to the individual heart. It is intended to be divisive. Jesus said in Matthew 10:34, Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is not the sword of warfare, but of division. One of the marks of true evangelism is always that those who are being affected by it are divided. They are either for or against. No neutrality is possible when the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is acceptance or rejection. Finally, there was an assault, verses 5 through 7. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. The Greek word used in verse 5 means a rush. It was a wild, furious mob bent on stoning them. John MacArthur asserts that this indicated that the Jews had perpetrated the action because Gentiles didn't stone people as a form of execution. Stoning was a, Jew, a Jewish form of execution that was connected to blasphemy. So the Jews con had convinced the Gentiles that they were guilty of blasphemy against God and deserved to be stoned. Well, Paul and Barnabas were bold, but they weren't stupid. It became clear that they couldn't stay. Their ministry there had obviously come to an end. In Matthew 10:23, Jesus gave explicit orders. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Paul and Barnabas got out of Dodge. They went 18 miles away to Lystra and right away started preaching the gospel. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul obviously, Paul observed him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed said in a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked, verses eight through 10. Everyone knew this man. He had never walked, had always been crippled. He'd probably lived there all his life. Paul was preaching as always, and the scripture tells us that this man heard him 
The word used here for heard mean that, means that he was continuously listening. He was listening to Paul's presentation of Christ and God was working in his heart. He was listening and Paul was continuing to stare at him. Out of all the people, Paul's eyes stuck to this cripple. The Spirit of God drew Paul right to the man and Paul perceived that he had faith to be healed. Somehow the Spirit of God revealed to Paul that this man believed. So he yells at the, at the cripple, stand up on your feet. And this lame man who had never walked in his life was granted the faith to obey. And the word says that he leapt and walked. He didn't just stand up. That would have been glorious enough for a guy who had never used his feet. He shot up, leapt to his feet. The crowd is absolutely flabbergasted. Immediately after this great success, Satan comes and hits Paul and Barnabas right between the eyes with the problem of pride. Verse 11, now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. You might be saying to yourself, seriously? Where did they get that idea from? Well, there was a traditional story being told around Lystra. One time the gods Zeus and Hermes came to earth in disguise and they came to the town of Lystra asking for hospitality. They, they wanted a place to stay and something to eat. And everybody refused them. Everybody in town but two people. An old man named Philemon and his wife Baucis. They took in the gods, fed them and gave them shelter. The whole town of Lystra, Lystra was wiped out by these two gods. They killed everyone but Philemon and Baucis, who were made the guardians of a splendid temple outside the city. And when they died, they had the honor of being turned into two great trees. I don't consider that much of an honor, but okay. Must have been important to the Laocaneas. Shortly after Paul performs this miracle, everybody thinks, Susan Hermes are back. We're not going to blow it this time. Verse 12. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. They started a big celebration and Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on because they don't understand the Lycanian language. The priest of Zeus comes down and he brings the oxen and garlands and they're going to sacrifice to them. What a subtle attack. Here was an appeal to their ego. Imagine being welcomed as gods. Satan's approach runs the gamut. If persecution wasn't successful, he'll try exaltation. All of a sudden, understanding dawns, and they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. If Paul and Barnabas had succumbed to this, it would have been the end of them as Christ's messengers. The word translated useless literally means no things. They worshiped nothing. He says, turn from the nothing. We've been telling you the good news. Stop worshiping no, th no things and turn to the living God. Anybody who doesn't worship God worships nothing. Turn to the living God as opposed to the dead things. Since they weren't Jews, they didn't say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rather, he says, 
the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them. Every man born into the world has the knowledge of God. We know from Romans 1 that he can be clearly seen in his creation, so all are without excuse. Paul and Barnabas described the living God using natural revelation. They spoke to the people in the context of their own culture. After telling them that it's the God who made everything and the God who was patient with the nations and the God who brings the rain and fruitful seasons, the God who fills our hearts with gladness, they could hardly restrain the people. As hard as it was, they prevailed. The ceremony stopped reluctantly, but it did stop. Apparently, they hung around Lystra for a while. There was a bit of a break, and then here comes the counterattack of the enemy. Verses 19 and 20. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. The same crowd of people who had thought him a god is now persuaded to throw rocks at Paul until they thought he was dead. It was mob violence. They smashed him to the ground, pounded him with rocks, and then hauled his body out and threw it in the dump. Verse 20 says that when the disciples gathered around him, what disciples? Two men went into this town, Paul and Barnabas. They must have had a fruitful ministry because there were disciples. We know the names of three of them, Lois, Eunice, and Timothy, and we'll hear more about them next week. While these disciples are standing around Paul, he rose up. He was miraculously restored, gets up, and goes back into town. That's persistence. The next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derby. It's a 30-mile hike to Derby, ladies, and they left the day after the stoning. Paul never lost a day. He preached the gospel in Derby, making many disciples. Verses 21 through 23. And when they, had reached the when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They had been expelled from Antioch of Pisidia, threatened in Iconium, stoned in Lystra, but yet when God raises Paul up, they go back into those same cities to strengthen the disciples. That kind of courage and devotion comes only from trust in the living God. They meet with the Christians that have already been won to Christ. First, they strengthened them, made them solid in the word. They taught them, giving them a solid foundation. Then they exhorted them to continue in the faith. They appointed elders, helping them to get organized into a community of believers. The last thing they did was to commend them to the Lord or committed them to the Lord in prayer. When they returned to Antioch, where they had started, they reported all that God had done, how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So the gospel has begun to spread to the Gentile world. Paul and Barnabas have accomplished the first missionary journey. The invitation of non-Jews to enter into the fullness of church of Jesus Christ 
becomes the fuel for the fire that blazes in chapter 15. It was always a difficult thing for Jews to allow the inclusion of Gentiles into the church. In the early years of the church, Jews saw Christianity only as a sect of Judaism. Christianity had no distinction apart from Judaism. All of the promises to Israel are fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. They saw Christianity only as a logical end to Judaism. And for the most part, they saw the only way into Christianity was through Judaism. So the concept that a pagan would simply jump right into the church and be equal to a Jew was foreign for most of the Jews. As a result of the inability to see Christianity independent of Judaism, a conflict ensued. The conflict is the theme of chapter 15. The Jews had been somewhat tolerant in that they had allowed Samaritans to enter the church, the Samaritans being half Jewish and half Gentile. And they had allowed a couple of Gentiles, as, such as the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius and his household who were saved Gentiles, but they had been God-fearers and had attached themselves to Judaism already, having already begun to worship the God of Israel. These Jews had held to certain patterns of living legalistically and ritualistically, abiding by all these laws, and had conformed themselves to a strict kind of lifestyle. Here were these Gentiles who had gone through their whole life doing exactly what they wanted to do, and in one fell swoop, they enter into equal blessings with these Jews who have lived all their lives bound by the law. They just can't understand how anybody could have equal rights who didn't live a sacrificial, legalistic, and subscribed moral life. And so they began to resent the Gentiles who were entering the church on an equal basis and without having to subscribe to the Jewish law. And to top it all off, the Jews were outnumbered by the Gentiles. They feared a mostly Gentile church drowning out a Jewish significance. Some of these Jews decided it was time to take a stand against what Paul and Barnabas were doing. They wanted Gentiles to become Jews first. John MacArthur puts it this way, you know, it was as if the door of salvation was opened by grace, but the screen door was legalism or Judaism. So you had to go through double doors. Judaism was necessary for entry, imposing Judaism on the Gentiles as a way to get to grace. The issue of the Jerusalem conference was, how do you get saved? Is it by grace alone or is it by grace and law? Is it by faith or is it by faith and works? That's still the issue in the church today. Adding something to the basic method of salvation. This is the longest running heresy in the history of the church. Why is it so difficult for men to understand that they are saved by faith plus nothing? Not keeping the Ten Commandments, not baptism, not taking the sacraments of any church, not joining a church, nothing but faith, and that is a gift from God. Amen. Chapter 15 begins with some false teachers arriving from Judea, teaching that unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you could not be saved. They were imposing legalism on top of grace. If grace is law, then there is no grace. Thus, they challenged the gospel of the grace of God as Paul and Barnabas had been proclaiming it. 
The position of these men appeared to be supported by the church in Jerusalem, although they had no backing and no commission from the Jerusalem church, but were self-appointed guardians of legalism. Needless to say, there was a confrontation between these Judaizers and Paul and Barnabas. It was determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. On their way to Jerusalem, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, telling everyone about the conversion of the Gentiles and causing much joy. When they came to Jerusalem, they were received by the church. This was a formal acceptance acknowledging that they were brothers in Christ and they were allowed to speak. They reported all that God had done through them. The glory is given to God. It's his work. When they started to give all this information regarding God's salvation of the Gentiles, the sect of the Pharisees spoke up and said that it was necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. This dissension led to the discussion. Luke tells us that the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. After much discussion back and forth, Peter stands up to speak. The first thing he says is, look backwards. This issue was settled at least 10 years ago. You, you know that God chose me to go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel, and they believed. And that's all God asked. God didn't impose circumcision then. He reminds them that the fundamental principle of salvation by faith has already been settled. God didn't require Cornelius to be circumcised, so that issue had been settled by God himself. Salvation is by grace alone. The second thing he says is that God who knows the heart gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit just as he had the Jews and made no distinction between them. He goes on to say that God purified their hearts by faith. They were cleansed from sin. These are Gentiles saved by grace through faith with no other requirements. The fact that they were purified in their hearts by faith means that faith is enough. When God takes away sin, that's it. If God made them holy, that settled it. The final thing Peter says in verses 10 and 11, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Don't challenge God and don't question God. His decision in salvation is final. Don't put a yoke on the neck of the Gentiles that we couldn't even carry. Why impose on pagans what won't work for you? None of these Jews ever got saved by law or purified by law. None of them ever received the Holy Spirit by law or were cleansed by law. Verse 12 tells us that the entire multitude kept silent. Barnabas and Paul now stand up to speak. And they were declaring that miracles and wonders of God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas were traveling around preaching salvation by grace and faith. God was attesting their message by miracles. That means God approved of their message. Nowhere in scripture does it say that God was confirming the message of the party of the circumcision with miracles. God does not get involved in confirming false doctrine by miracles. Now James speaks and states that Peter declared how God had visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. 
God had already been saving Gentiles. These Judaizers had been telling the Gentiles that without circumcision they couldn't be saved. But they were ignoring one fact. Those Gentiles were already saved. They saw that God was already doing what they said could not be done. God was certainly overruling them on this point. The activity was accepted as the valid activity of God only as it corresponds to the written word of God. James says in verse 15, and with, and with this the words of the prophets agree. He quoted Amos who had predicted that there were, would come a time when Gentiles would be reached. James is confirming by the prediction of the word of God what Peter and Paul and Barnabas had declared. His point is that God intends to save Gentiles as Gentiles, and he had already begun to do so. The Old Testament says nothing about Gentiles and the kingdom having to become Jews. It simply says the residue of men is going to seek the Lord, and all the nations who call on his name will be saved. Then James states the decision. Verse 19. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. This word for trouble connotes someone standing on the side of the road throwing rocks at somebody's feet to hinder their walking. What a picture. They are walking the right path and all those legalistic, bri legalistic bricks are just going to make them stumble. The Gentile doesn't need to become a Jew. He only needs to respond to Christ. That took care of the doctrine issue. Salvation is by grace and grace alone, and no man can add to his salvation by works. Finally, James gives some practical suggestions for a letter to the Gentile believers designed to lay this controversy to rest. He says, we should write them to abstain from idolatry, from sexual immorality, from eating that which is strangled, and from eating blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Notice the classification here. Two things in the moral realm, idolatry and sexual immorality, and two things in the, in the realm of Christian love, of sensitivity and understanding toward others. If the Gentiles ate animals that were strangled and ate blood, they would have great difficulty in fellowshipping with Jewish believers in Christ who still clung to the same dietary laws. So James wisely suggests that they should forgo these practices in order to have fellowship in the body of Christ. So the decision is clear, the doctrine is settled, and the fellowship issue is addressed. What's next? Beginning in verse 22, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Jerusalem sent two of its best to give a solid report on what the decision was. Salvation is by grace, through faith alone. In addition to sending these men, they wrote a letter detailing everything, just so there would be no mistake. The letter says the apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren who are of the Gentiles, the Jewish brethren to the Gentile brethren. There was no division in their mind. There was no schism. 
What a sigh of relief must have gone up from these Gentile Christians when the letter arrived. They would not have to be subject to any Jewish ritual. It was very apparent that the whole church was in agreement. Judas and Silas spent their time exhorting and strengthening the brethren with many words. They stayed a long time to teach these Gentiles. Isn't that a beautiful picture of unity in the church? Now, we all, now as we come to verse 36, the Jerusalem council is over. The results have been announced to the people in Antioch. There's great rejoicing, great celebration, great joy, because their salvation is valid by grace alone. It's time to preach the message, and the church begins to move out. And we see just the beginnings in our text of the second missionary tour. Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Paul and Barnabas were teaching and preaching the word and they were having a great ministry where they were, yet they felt a responsible concern for those they had led to Christ. Now Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became, became so sharp that they parted one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Here is a quarrel between Barnabas and Paul. They could not agree whether or not to take John Mark with them again. Barnabas was his cousin and wanted to give him another chance. But Paul didn't want to take the chance because the work was both important and dangerous, and he didn't think it wise to take someone they couldn't count on. So we read the sad note that those that there arose a sharp contention between them. Barnabas was looking at the person, and Paul was looking at the work. There are times when there are differences of viewpoint which require a separation. The will of God was that Barnabas take Mark and go to Cyprus, which had not been visited since the churches there had been founded. And it was the will of God for, si for Paul to take Silas and go into Syria and Cilicia because the churches there needed his particular ministry. But it was not the will of God that they should be sharp in their contention. It was the will of God to separate, but it was not the will of God to quarrel. Barnabas later was commended by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 6. He held no continuing animosity, and Paul absolutely loved Mark and asked Timothy to come to him when he was in Roman jail and bring Mark, saying he was profitable to him. That's true restoration, isn't it, ladies? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for insight into your word. We're thankful that salvation is by grace through faith, and even the faith is a gift from you. For how could we believe on our own, Lord? Thank you that the early church settled the issue of salvation by grace by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for all time. Lord, I pray that there is no one here counting on their self-righteousness, counting on their good deeds or their religious performance. Help us to know that there's nothing to glory in to glory in except for the cross of Jesus Christ. To accept by faith is all that is required. To add anything is to lose everything. We ask you to make us faithful followers of the apostles, 
Like them, help us to trust in a living God who is changing men's hearts and delivering their minds from the grip and power of the evil one. Help us to rejoice as we too see the power of the word of God in our day. We ask all this in your name. Amen.